Father, your grace is incredible, and it's hard for us to comprehend how you would love us. It's hard for us to realize that although you are perfect and pure, and we rebelled against you in a high-fisted, high-handed way, you sent your son to die for us. While we were enemies and rebels, you came to rescue us. And because of that, Lord, we sing about amazing grace. Father, I pray as we enter into the time where we study your word that your spirit would speak to us in tones that cannot be ignored and words that reach deep into our hearts. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your holy law. And all God's people said, amen. Nazi Germany operated about a thousand POW camps during World War II, and my uncle was in one of them. He didn't say a whole lot about his experience, but the experience that we can gather from other prisoners, I'm sure, is similar to his. The living conditions were brutal. The days were filled with hard labor and meager meals. The atmosphere was depressing. There was a constant threat of violence and abuse, and death like a cloud was hanging over their heads. And the thought of escape never left their minds. And then one morning, my uncle and his fellow prisoners woke up and the Nazis were gone. No explanation, <laughs> they were simply gone. Prisoners didn't know what to do, so they walked out of the camp. They didn't know where they were going. They just got on a road and began to walk. And some trucks came their way and they were fearful that it was the enemy, maybe wanting to apprehend them and put them back into camp, but no, it was some friendly people who said the war's over <laughs> and you can go home. They took them to hospitals immediately where they were examined and then sent back home to enjoy their family and their friends. Now, if I would have asked my Uncle Glenn, and I never did, but if I would have asked him, would you like to go back to the Stalag? I'm sure he would say in no uncertain terms, never on your life. Why would I want to go back to a place of darkness and death? You'd have to be crazy to go back to a place like that. No person in their right mind would ever want to return. Which seems to be the very same message that the writer of Hebrews is giving to a group of Jewish Christians who are thinking of going back to Judaism and leaving Jesus. So this is really, at the end of chapter 12, his final attempt to persuade them not to turn not to leave Christ, whose covenant is superior, whose mediatorship is far better. Why would you leave the best to go to something so indeed inferior? And so he, he tries to and implements 
a wonderful image to impress upon them the truth. By the way, when you look at it, the Bible is filled with metaphors and pictures and images of truth that once planted in the mind are hard to forget. We think in pictures, and the Bible often preaches in pictures. And so here is the sermon that the author is giving. It's all about two mountains. Two very different mountains with different climates. The two mountains represent the two covenants that he's been discussing throughout the book. He's given to us the essential nature of each as he talks about these two mountains. And they are historical mountains, which you can still visit today. So what do the mountains say? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, I want to begin reading with verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. There is a mountain that can be touched. He's talking about this first mountain, but that's not the mountain you've come to, he says to his Christian friends. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them. They could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. And the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Let's stop there. What an imposing scene. It's a material mountain that can be touched. The one we come to cannot be touched. This one can be touched. The wind could be felt, the trumpets and the voices could be heard. The fire had a smell to it and the gloomy darkness all around could be seen. How amazing, darkness and gloom and fire and lightning and storm. The manifestations of God's presence on that day were tangible. And I'm talking about Mount Sinai and the delivering of the law to Moses, which you can read about in the book of Exodus. In fact, let me read just a little bit from Exodus 19 and see if it doesn't sound exactly like we, what we just read. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. And then a little later on the people begged, don't let God keep speaking, we cannot bear it. Everything about this scene, this scene is, is intimidating. There's nothing welcoming or kind about it. Yes, the people of God were told to be there, but told not to touch the mountain. You can touch it, but if you touch it, you die. Even if an animal wanders up to the mountain, that animal now has the, the sting of death to it, and they had to kill the animal, not by coming close, but by, by shooting it with a dart. But God came, 
And God was going to speak to his people. And we read in the book of Deuteronomy that there were also myriads of angels present. Tough to know exactly what that means. Scripture, when it talks about angels present, often talks about multitudes or thousands upon thousands or 10,000s upon 10,000s. I tried to do a little math this week and gave up. Because in other words, it's so many angels, you just cannot count. By the way, one Bible teacher believes that it was the angels who were blowing the shofars, the trumpets. <laughs> and if you can imagine so many angels blowing those horns, how loud and odious it must have sounded in this awesome, awesome place. The people were visibly assaulted by the holiness of God and the majesty of God. And so terrifying was the situation that Moses, who's Moses? The lawgiver. Who's Moses? He's the one that looks like Christ. Another prophet is coming after me who is like me, Moses says. Who is Moses? He's the mediator of this old covenant law. And what does it say about Moses? The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. By the way, that exact quotation comes out of the incident of the golden calf. But the author is implying that the fear that Moses felt when Israel made the golden calf, it's even more intense when God came down. And not only was the mountain shaking, the people were shaking. And so was the mediator. Everything about this scene, although God ordained, is imposing. So what's the message? What's the message of this mountain called Mount Sinai? God's not really concerned about the mountains. They're just the images to carry uh, the, the message through. It means that God in Revelation, in the law mediated by Moses, is a God that is unapproachable. You cannot get close. He maintains his distance. He is perfectly holy, and the people are not holy. And everything about this revelation says, stay back. You're not welcomed. And they see the effects of the presence of God, but never get close. By the way, describing this situation in Deuteronomy chapter four, it says this, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. That's important for us to remember, and apparently the author of the book of Hebrews wanted us to remember it because that's how he ends chapter 12, reminding us that our God is a consuming fire. I've enjoyed reading Pilgrim's Progress over the years. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read it. I would encourage you to do it. One of my favorite pastors read it over 100 times in his life. I'm about 98 times away from that. <laughs> but there is a wonderful section where uh, John Bunyan takes people who are in, in metaphor, in allegory, people who are on their way, Christians who are on their way to the celestial city, to Mount Zion. And then he has them coming across different people 
who either encouraged them or discouraged them. So Christian is the name of the pilgrim as he makes his progress toward heaven. And he runs into Mr. Worldly Wiseman. You know how this council's gonna go. He was told to walk in a way where his burden of sin could be eased at a place called the cross. But Mr. Wiseman said, no, you must take another path to Mr. Legality, the law. Do you see yonder hill? By that hill you must go. In the first house, you come to is his. So Christian turned out of the way. And he went to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, when he got there, now that huge hill that was raised by his way did much hang over it. And Christian was afraid to venture further, lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore there st he stood still and wot not what to do. Also his burden now seemed heavier than it was before. There came flashes out of the mountain, fire that made Christian tremble and afraid that he would be burned. And therefore he sweat and did quake for fear. And now he began to be sorry that he'd ever taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. And with that, he looked up and saw evangelists coming to meet him. The sight produced in him shame. He went by the way of the law. As many Christians do, they come to Christ and they're saved by grace, but they think they have to keep going by law. Now here, in this metaphor, he's not even a believer yet. But people will say the law, the way to heaven is the law. But that's Mount Sinai with the darkness and the gloom and the smell of death. And that's the old covenant scent of God. But it could never produce life. And now notice this joyous contrast when we come to verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. The first mountain is tangible, the second is not. It's a heavenly city. You can go to the real Jerusalem, but what is discussed here is not true, literally, of the real Jerusalem. This is a heavenly place, and it's a glorious place. Whereas the first scene was one of darkness, this is a scene of joyfulness. It almost has a lyrical feel to it as you begin to read it, as though this were one of the early confessions of the church. That they used to talk about going to a city, as we sing about going to a city. A heavenly Jerusalem. You can read way back in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5 that King David and his men marched toward the Jebusite stronghold now called Jerusalem. And they captured the fortress of Zion and made it the city of David. And David made it the city of God with God's approval. So the tabernacle comes, uh, not the, well, in a sense, the tabernacle, the ark was there, and then Solomon builds his temple, and the ark is there, and God willingly takes Jerusalem as his place of residence. But we're not talking about the earthly one. We're talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the city of the living God. 
Oh, God was alive on Mount Sinai and that to judge, but he is alive on Mount Zion and that to save. What a beautiful contrast. The city of the living God. Back in Hebrews chapter 11, this was the passion of Abraham's heart. He was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for a country, a better country, a heavenly one, 11.16 says. And so it all comes to a climax when the writer says, our hearts are already in Mount Zion. There, Hebrews 13, 14, do we have an enduring city and we are looking for that city to come. Here we don't have an enduring city. There we have one that endures and our eyes are upon it. If you were to take time to go to the book of the Revelation and I'll read just a short passage, you, you realize that heaven is going to be this glorious place beyond our comprehension and we have few facts about it. Someone said if God gave us more facts about how glorious heaven is, people would be taking their life to get there. And that may be true. Revelation 21.10, and he carried me away in the spirit, John says, to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like, was like that of a very precious jewel. It had 12 gates, and on the gates were written the 12 tribes of Israel, and it had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles. And so the, the believers of the Old Testament and the believers of the New Testament come together in this eternal city, and this is our eschatological expectation, our hope for the end times. We are looking for a city. Boy, the cities of this earth are having a rough time because the gospel is not there, but this city will be a glorious one. Why aren't people looking forward to heaven? More specifically, why aren't Christians in America talking about going to heaven? Someone ventured a guess, maybe it's because we have it too easy here. Now things have gotten harder, but when we look at the scriptures, all the believers were passing through this world doing what they could for the glory of God. But this world wasn't their home. And like Pilgrim, they were on their way to a celestial, glorious, holy, eternal city. And that was their hope. It's interesting when you see the very first verb, verse 22, you have come. Very similar back to verse 18, you have not come. But here, a Greek word is used that means to proselyte and has with it the idea of conversion. When you come to Christ, you have come to a new city. You have left one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, Colossians tells us, and now you've come to the kingdom of light. Again, beautiful metaphor showing our spiritual transformation that has taken place. We are in this glorious city of light. And one theologian said it would be difficult to 
speak in any more wondrous terms about our realized eschatology. You say, what does that mean? Eschatology talks about the last days. And it's interesting that our salvation covers today, tomorrow, and forever. When a person comes to faith in Christ, they are saved. They are being saved. And ultimately, they will be saved. Three different doctrines, justification, sanctification, glorification. And so it is with our present possession. You and I have already come to Zion and we're enjoying some of its benefits, but we're not there yet. There's still more to look forward to. And so the scripture says our hope is on heaven. Ephesians chapter two says we've already been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. What does that mean? There's more of heaven that you and I should be experiencing than we are. Because we're already there, in a sense. Already, but not yet. How frustrating that can be, to be already, but not yet. The scripture tells us that when we are seated with Christ, we have a foretaste of what it is. But if you have a foretaste of a good meal, Thanksgiving, and you take a bite of the turkey before you're supposed to, and you almost get a knife thrust into your hand <laughs> by the cook who says you need to wait. They always use that line, don't spoil your dinner. My dinner's never spoiled by eating ahead of time. <laughs> I still wanna eat later. But that one taste is all it takes to drive me to be at the table at time because I know that's just a part of the glorious meal that is to follow. You and I have the privilege of feasting on Christ today. <laughs> oh, but the banquet at the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be so unbelievable. All the food will taste great, even the vegetables. <laughs> if they're in heaven, I'm not sure they are, but all the food will taste great. And you can eat and be satisfied and never too full. I'm only guessing. It's a perfect place. But our feasting on Christ today is but a foretaste of what will come. And isn't it good of God to give us his peace and his forgiveness and his joy now while we live in this broken and dying world? Hey, who's gonna be there? This portion of scripture tells us God is going to be there. It's the city of the living God. He's been described in the book of Hebrews as not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, and he himself is alive. God will be there, and angels will be there. Angels are ministering spirits to those who are called to receive salvation, so they minister to us. I think often in the context of protection, although we don't see them, we're very glad that they're there. But they populate this new city of Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, with numbers that are incredible. Now they're worshiping with us and glorifying his name. And notice they are in joyful assembly. So here's where we get the idea here and from other places 
that this indeed is going to be a glorious, glorious place. Not the darkness of Sinai, but the joy of Zion. It appears to be a historical allusion to the Greek games when there would be huge celebration and uh, we do that somewhat in our Olympic games, but everyone in the city would be involved. It is a joyful celebration. So God is there and angels are there and believers are there. To the church of the firstborn, Jesus is the firstborn par excellence, but all of us are called the firstborn. And this indicates that our inheritance will be the high, at the highest level, the level of the firstborn son. The church of the firstborn. Their names are written in heaven. And we're told that in Luke chapter 10. We are citizens of this place, Philippians chapter three. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior to come. But believers are there, and that makes heaven sweet. It tells us that the spirits of the righteous ones made perfect are there. Oh, Bible scholars trip over this phrase, but I think in a general sense it means all of those who are truly saved. From the Old Testament times, including those who lost their lives including your loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord. Maybe it happened this week, maybe it happened years ago, but they're there. They're spirits because the resurrection hasn't yet taken place and they've got some type of temporary body, but it's not the body they'll have at the resurrection, which will be a glorified body. Oh, there's so much we don't know, except heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face in heaven, that wonderful place. Heaven is sweeter as I lose more friends to that place. Isn't that true? 20 years ago, I wouldn't have had the same experience and the same perspective so God is there, and by the way, he's called the judge, so he's the living God, and he's the judge. But look at verse 24, Jesus is there. Hebrews is telling us Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us, pleading our case. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is there. We talked about the mediator of the old covenant who was filled with fear. Moses is a sinner like us. Jesus is a savior like us in our humanity, unlike us in our sin. The perfect savior. Jesus is there. It's a great name that's given to him throughout the scriptures that he is the mediator, the go-between. Between holy God and sinful man, God became man to bring the two sides, to reconcile the two sides together. And so he has. Hebrews 8, 6, but in fact the ministry of Jesus has received, is received as superior to the old covenant. He's the mediator of a superior covenant established on better promises. But it also mentions his blood. Did you see that in verse 24? 
The blood of Christ was shed for the sacrifice of sins, the giving of his life. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, the Bible tells us. Old Testament animal sacrifices replaced by a better eternal sacrifice, Jesus. Hebrews 9, how much more, if the blood of animals covered sin for a year, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, who offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from acts that lead to death so that you may serve the living God. The, the sacrifice of Christ can cleanse your guilty conscience as well as wash all your sin away before the eyes of a holy father. There is forgiveness and there is peace. And those are the blessings of that glorious place, the heavenly Jerusalem, which we enjoy even today. Abel's blood, by the way, and it says that Christ's blood is better than Abel's blood. Interesting analogy. And his blood still speaks. In chapter 11, even though he's dead, he yet speaks. If you go back to Genesis chapter four, the blood of Abel was crying out from the ground for justice, justice. The blood of Jesus Christ speaks better because it cries out for mercy, mercy. I remember that story of a pastor who was having a bunch of pictures taken for some publication and they were laying out all the different photographs to choose the best one and his secretary said to him none of these pictures do you justice he said I'm not looking for justice I'm looking for mercy <laughs> the blood of Abel speaks of justice the blood of the law speaks of justice and the blood of Jesus speaks of mercy Justice has been met. Our God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. So with confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Abba, Abba, Father, cry from death to life. Oh, what a difference. You see, the message of the second mountain, because both mountains reveal a picture of God, is not that God is unapproachable. The message here is God is with us. Come and welcome to Jesus. Notice the comparisons. The scene on Mount Sinai is terrifying. Mount Zion, joyful. God is unapproachable, God is with us, Mount Zion. The climate is death in Sinai. The climate is life in Mount Zion. And the difference is the law. And Mount Zion is all about grace. You see, there was so much in Judaism that was impressive in that day. The clothes they wore, the ceremonies they performed, the, all the rituals. The temple itself I mean, all of that was impressive. Visually, tangibly, the priests that they could talk to, they wanted to go back to something that was so great in appearance. But Mount Zion can't be seen. For the just shall live 
by faith. But the unseen is more real than the seen because the seen is temporary and the unseen is eternal. And we come to that which is invisible but substantial because of Christ. So, verse 25, see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? You say, I've never heard from heaven. You just have. You say, wow, you're pretty arrogant. (laughs) No, it's not me. It's the book. When you hear the book, you hear the voice of God. And he says, come before it's too late. Come and you will find life. Leave the imposing, threatening mountain. No one in their right mind would go back to live under that system. Stay with the awesome glory of the God who loves us so much. He died for us and lives with us. I remember a story of the great golfer Arnold Palmer who one time was in the Middle East and had befriended some kings and princes. He gave them gifts as you normally would give to a dignitary and he golfed with some of them who enjoyed golfing and and he had a good time. And so one of the kings said to him, "Um, I would like to give you a gift. I would like to give you a golf club. And Arnold Palmer said, well, that's very kind of you. He didn't say, I've got a bunch at home, but (laughs) that's very kind of you. So he said, I'll I'll send it to you. So he went home, and uh, back in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, he gets a letter from this prince, and he was given the deed to a golf club, an actual full course. (laughs) He said, I wasn't expecting that. When God says, here's a little foretaste of what I want to give you, we think it's so small. I have enough of that. Oh, really? Let me open your eyes to show you what's to come when you know Christ. It was the great author of hymns and poems, John Newton, who said, Savior, If of Zion's city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in your name. And again, to run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Let's pray. Oh, Father, The contrast is so clear and it is so evident that what we've come from, the law brings death. It shows us our sin. It reveals the holiness of God who is a consuming fire. But the gospel reveals the God who came to die for our sin, appeasing the just wrath of God, quenching the fire and bringing us into a relationship of children and sons to live with you forever. 
Oh Lord, may we start living in the beauty and glory of that place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.